It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Danielle Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Our theme for today is, is there something more valuable than truth? In each of edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem and myself discuss a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, explores with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. Today is a special episode for a few reasons. The first and less important is because this is being taped live in front of a live audience of close to 175 participants in CLP and streamed live. And just personally, for heaven's sake, I know we do this podcast, but I really feel we're doing it for me. Just talking with the two of you, it just, it's, I gotta tell you, I feel like better about my life and about Israel and Zionism, just to be able to, just cause like you're my chavr, like we're, we're like, so like somehow you're interloping here. <laughs> Nothing personal. I, know I always you. thought it was just us talking. I didn't realize there was an audience. There was an audience. It's true. Yes, yeah. so, I'm here as well. <laughs> Thank yes, you. you are. You are. <laughs> so, so this is a little different, but there is a far more important reason why this is special. And that is that this episode is dedicated in memory of a really unique person, a unique lady, a personal friend, a friend and former board member of the Institute, Michelle Gary. And our session is dedicated in, in, in her honor and her memory. And uh, Michelle, I remember being invited into her home as she was convening. She loved to convene these intellectual groups. But when you looked at Michelle, Mark was the career person. He had a big, fancy career. And Michelle was the Eshet Chayel next door, next to him. And it could be really easy to underestimate Michelle for the first minute. She had the most beautiful smile and a beautiful laugh. And I always felt embraced by her with such total love and friendship. And, you know, she had her children and, and Mark's career. And, and then you spoke to her. And I didn't know this at the time. You felt the strength, the intellectual rigor. Only later on, she was part of a generation where she gave up her Georgetown law degree to raise a family. And that's what you did. But you didn't necessarily get that Georgetown law degree. 
And, you know, it's so beautiful tonight we're talking about, is there something more valuable than truth? <laughs> it's, she just embodied a complexity of joy of life, of, of joy of Torah, joy of people. There was a kindness to her. And at the same time, there was an intellectual rigor and a strength and a commitment. And I could not be more honored to dedicate tonight's episode in her memory. And Michelle is survived by also a former board member and a dear, dear friend, her husband, Mark, her two children, Philip and Tammy, her son and daughter-in-law, Mark and Amanda, and her two grandchildren, Abigail and Miles, and her mother, Ruth. May her memory be a blessing. Let's begin. Today, we're going to be dealing with the fall of the government in Israel. Not why it fell, or even the fall itself, but the moment of the fall. Today, we'll, we'll be dealing not with the crisis and what's going wrong. And I hope that's going to be okay, Yossi, because I feel like sometimes together we're always unpacking for ourselves and this, this crisis that we have to somehow deal with. But with a moment of inspiration, while the fall itself filled me with sadness, the moment of the fall filled me with hope. What happened at this moment? Let me share it with you. Because as is often the case, we know all the bad news. We know whenever something wrong happened, we share nastiness all the time. But something actually remarkable happened. And as I was watching it, I had this complex feeling of sadness and where my spirit was being uplifted. I listened to Prime Minister Bennett and Foreign Minister um, Yair Lapid announcing. When they announced the dissolution of the government and imminent new elections, not only did Prime Minister Bennett keep his word and put in motion an orderly transference of authority, handing over the reins to an ideological foe, to centrist Yair Lapid. But not only did it happen, the way it happened. These two politicians, each one representing a different community and a different ideology, spoke with such courtesy, civility, and even profound affection for each other that are not only rare in Israel, but unfortunately rare in politics anywhere and everywhere. Bennett referred to Lapid as a mensch, and Lapid said, I love you. They both spoke of each other's service to the country and commitment to the country and values and respect they have for each other. And even prayed that they will both have a long career of serving the people. Can this moment become a norm? What would it take? What ideas and ideologies need to be taught, ideas embraced, values reimagined? The tensions that have accompanied this government were entirely expected. And the fact that some ideologues on both the right and the left chose their commitment to their ideological principles um, over the well-being of the coalition and left, bringing about its fall. But was far less expected 
that the government would end the way it did. In explaining his decision to help form this government, Bennett, Israel's first Orthodox Prime Minister, said that he did so to a term that the three of us might know, might have a little bit to talk about, or know a little bit about. He used the word, L'Shem Shamayim, for the sake of heaven. To affirm that there was something for the sake of heaven, I want to affirm the unity of the people of Israel. He said, Achim Anachnu, we're brothers and sisters, something that we so often forget. But acting for the sake of heaven can be ambiguous. For half the country, the government was perceived to be an act of betrayal, a government founded on a lie, a lie to the voters, but more importantly, a lie to the truths that Bennett himself and his fellow Yamina voters advocated for so long. Bennett's opponents on the right have insisted that to act for the sake of heaven is to stand fast by one's deeply held truths. What is heaven if not a commitment to truth? And so today I want to talk, I want us to talk together about what truth demands. Is there something higher? What ideological transformations need to be assimilated from the theological foundations of this coalition government so that it could become a norm? Yossi, wonderful to be with you. Always, Danielle, especially tonight. So tell me. <laughs> There's a beautiful word in Hebrew that actually comes from Yiddish, Firgun, which uh, is, um, is a concept that's uh, honored uh, more abstractly than in practice very often uh, in Israeli society. But uh, Firgun in the way uh, is the opposite of uh, Schadenfreude. And, uh, the opposite of what? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, Tell okay. me what Schadenfreude that means. is to be is to be pleased when uh, when someone fails, uh -huh. to delight in someone's failure, and Firgun is to delight in someone's achievements. And what we saw playing out the other night in the in this remarkable and uh, fleeting moment in Israeli politics was Firgun. Uh, um, in, in the way that Bennett addressed Lapid and, and, and Lapid reciprocated. And what I think we, we saw that night was that the means of this government was actually its ends. And the means uh, was courtesy, um, firgun, compromise above all, and the truth of this government was uh, was compromise. And what this government was saying is that compromise actually is, a, is such a profound value. It's not just a utilitarian way of, of, of managing a, uh, a political deadlock. This government turned compromise into the highest political value. So how do we, let, let's, I love that moment. And you, you know me, like, I collect nice moments because hold I'm, on, hold on to this one because it's not going to last. Because I'm, I, I'm an optimist, but I'm an ideological optimist. So I'm not going to let pessimism. I'm like, if ever it takes hold on, like, so 
it's there. So, okay, there is a, how do, it's rare, you know, this, so is it just, is, is it just a moment? What, what do we need to do? You know, we're educators, all three of us. What do we need to do to make this into a norm? Well, first, the first thing we need to do, and this goes really uh, very much against what we heard from uh, uh, our friend and colleague Yehuda Kurtzer say to, uh, to the gathering uh, earlier, uh, don't put your hopes on the next election. He was speaking in an American context, but, but uh, and I'm about to contradict that because the first thing we need to do is make sure that, that this government of compromise is uh, in some configuration uh, is, able, is able to continue. Uh, but in terms of, uh, of what we need to, edu to, to, the educational move is to push back against the notion that the more ideologically pure you are, the more you hold on to your absolute truth, the closer you are to actually being, or to actually embodying truth. And what I think we saw in, 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 we saw live, we saw being modeled, was that compromise, chesed, generosity, is, uh, is in fact a higher value than absolute truth. And this, you know, when I, I think about uh, the, the, the prayer that we, 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 we recite on the 13 attributes of God, chesed ve'emet, right? Chesed, generosity, loving kindness, and emet, truth. But the attribute of chesed actually precedes emet, and maybe is a precondition for truth to be expressed in the world. When truth comes in its pure form, to use a Kabbalistic term, it's 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 form of givura, it's form of the pure, the purest um, severity of truth. Truth itself becomes brittle and can't be sustained in the world. And you know, compromise I, is is the way in which truth is sustained. I I wonder, you know, this government was formed and embraced. The means, I love the language of a means which became an end. Um, it was formed at a moment of brokenness. A moment where our truths were leading us to a perpetual dead end, a cycle out of which we couldn't break. We were just going to go, it's like, we were just going to go on to the fourth, to fifth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, each one, it was not going to change. There was no transition between the sides. Very, very little. If there was any transition, it was that there were lower voter rates coming out um, in the Likud cities. So that's the, if there was any changes, like, come on. You know, but ideologically, nobody moved. Nobody moved. And how broken does it have to, how much pain do you have to cause? Or how much pain does it take till you know? that there's something that needs to be more important than truth. And <clears throat> there, we need to find and speak about, there's something about truth and your truth that both defines you, but it just, when you have it, maybe it's not truth, it's certainty, you become such a force for destructiveness. You know, one of the ideas that I love about about our tradition. I'm trying to think like, maybe we, you know, 
are we ready? Like, how much are we ready to speak of the fact that while we know what it is that we know, the one thing we have to know is that we don't that that we don't know if what we know is true. And I wonder, you know, again, I, I, I feel it so strongly. I don't want to speak about American politics right now because that's out of our competency, even though there are times when it makes me feel very good as a Zionist. Um, but it is out of our competency. But in Israel, everybody has like this truth. And it's, I don't know, maybe it came from the dangers that we faced. Maybe it came from the suffering that everybody has that truth. And um, I also think it might be a legacy of Sinai that we all stood together and received revelation. And ever since, we've been searching for fragments of, of absolute truth. And, and that's partly why I think Jews make such good fanatics, whatever. You know, we were the best communists. We were the, you know? So let's talk about that because I something that it's like, you know, I, I'm so much in the business of trying to create ideologues. You know, we want to create dreams, we want to create ideologies, we want to elevate the conversation. But there's a certain, you know, they speak about the difference between Ashkenazim and Sfaradim, that, that a Mesorti Judaism is a Judaism like, you know, one of the defining, you know, like what, like, could you tell me a characteristic of a Mesorti Jew? And uh, a Mesorti Jew doesn't eat bread on Pesach in Israel. Nobody does. <laughs> but outside it's of not Israel. Available. <laughs> but outside of Israel, outside of Israel, they'll eat pasta, but not bread. Right. right. So like, like I looked like that was just like an like an example. Or, you know, you have a keeper, but it has folds in it because mm -hmm. it's in your pocket. You know, it's like or I, in your I used to have one of those. Yeah, I used to have one of those. Um, there's something about living with the tradition but enabling yourself to embrace it. Because if you think about it for a second, when it comes to truth, is there any difference between bread and pasta on Pesach? Halachically, zero. But is there a difference between a sandwich and pasta on Pesach? Of course there is. Because mm -hmm. this one is competing with matzah and this one's not, right? So it's like, is it true? There's something about, and I, I know this is trivializing, but there's something about someone who says, I'm committed to Shabbos some of the time. Or I'm committed to Shabbos. Like here it is. I'm living with religion, mm -hmm. but I'm dancing with it. Mm -hmm. I'm dancing with it. I'm, I'm, I'm in the midst of that truth. The truth is not there to, 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 it's not there to propel me. It's there to live at my side. And there's something about a, a softening of truth um, that 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 Masorti Judaism recognizes, and maybe. This is just, even though now Ashkenazim and Sephardim seem to have all become Ashkenazi on, 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 in, in this level. Yeah, yeah, the Ashkenazim ruined the Mizrahim here. Mizrahim. But I, I feel like, let's look, like, let's try to put forth what are the illogical principles that could establish this notion? Well, I come back to the importance of. Um, of truth as as lived 
in, in the real world. Truth is not abstract. <clears throat> and um, ideology tends to be, um, tends to try to impose its idea on reality. Now, to some extent, that's necessary. To some extent, you try to influence reality, you try to shape reality in your way. But where ideologues go wrong is where they, they believe that their ideology can, can shape reality absolutely. Do you remember when you were? You know, I, I was just thinking as we're talking, it's part of your story. Oh, I, look. I, so you should be the one, like, you made, you're like, what changed in you? So, you know, I, I grew up, uh, as you know, uh, on the hard right. In fact, the farthest right. There was Did no far. There I'm was sorry. no farther right. You were not hard right. <laughs> you, you were farthest. off. Far. There was no more right than where I was as a teenager. And um, what made you change? Life. Life. So and that's what you mean when you say yes. truth is not. Yes. Like, I'll give you. You I'll let, you let you the, life I'll in. Tell you the moment. I'll wow. tell you. It was very. It was a specific moment, and it happened. Just after I moved to Israel, it was February 1983, and I was working as a journalist, and I hear on the radio that a grenade had been thrown into a Peace Now demonstration. And Emil Grunzweig, one of the demonstrators, was killed. And I happened to be 10 minutes away from the Prime Minister's office, which is where this happened. And I rushed over, and... The, the Peace Now demonstrators were all gone, but there was a group of counter-demonstrators who were still there and who had been taunting the Peace Now from my camp, the right wing. And I get there, and there literally there's a, there's a pool of blood with syringes that the medics had used floating in the, in, in the blood. And I turn to these, these young people, and I say, you know, we... Um, we like to say that Jewish blood isn't cheap. That was a big slogan in those years. I said, here it is, here's Jewish blood. And they laughed. And one of them said, who sent you here, Shimon Peres? And that was, a, that was the moment when I stopped being right wing. Wow. It happened literally in that, in that moment. You, 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 that was your moment of yeah. conversion. Yeah, and, but I didn't convert to left wing ideologue. Yeah, and I you went, met me. <laughs> <laughs> you moved me close. Oh, <laughs> but I, I, I went to the center, and the center is that place that insists on the primacy of life over, over ideology. Wow. You know, it would be an unbelievable tragedy if the only way we could move is when we're that broken. You know, I met this week this... Um, I can't mention his name, because if I mentioned his name, he'll lose in the primaries for the Likud. Um, but he was a very prominent member of the Likud. And he was known for quite a while as Netanyahu's, could I, is Bulldog, is that a bad, like, could sure. I say that? Sure. You know, he was just, he would snap. He was the chief snapper at everybody. That's what he did. He was this. A snapper. lot of competition, though. He had a lot. Role. And he, oh, he was exactly. There was a few. He was like snapping. Like, that's the way he was all the time. And here, he had gone through a moment of conversion, very similar to yours. And he was telling me about it, where it was on a Shabbat, and he said, What are we doing to this people? What are we doing?
And he said, I'm going to change. There's a new me. Wow. Um, yesterday on television, it seems that the old him was still there. But, <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to it any good news I can, because that's what I do. But he said, you know, he said, very similar. Maybe, he's, you know, he says, I believe everything is from heaven. <laughs> Classic Israeli secularist who's more religious than I am. <laughs> you know, like, he's like, yeah, everything is from heaven. You know, he, does, he, says, he says, I'm secular. I don't hear. <laughs> I'm secular, but I never work on Shabbos. And I only eat pasta. Like, it was like one of those, you know, like classic, you know, stories. But it's, it was just very funny. But, and, and, you know, my parents were all rabbis, you know. Anyway, but. My mother, my father, was like, like everybody was a rabbi. But, um, but he said, you know, it's not going to be repaired until Netanyahu leaves. He says, we can't. But maybe we have to break it. And then there has to be a room for a moment when right wing and left wing could come back together again. But I want to tell you, you know, I hear your story of conversion. And it's both, it's beautiful, but it's, that we, that can't be. So what's your educational move? I, I have all these educational moves that inspire me deeply. They just don't seem to have any impact on other people. <laughs> this is, you know, like, I, this is my problem. It's like I'm, I'm sitting there and you talk and you use the word L'Shem Shamayim. There's another word that he used that I try. And that's the notion of Kiddush Hashem to sanctify God's name. And one of the ideas of sanctifying God's name, because that too, by the way, classically, is to die for your truth. Literally, to die for Kiddush Hashem is to be willing to sacrifice life for your truth. But Kiddush Hashem literally means to sanctify God's name. And to sanctify God's name is to sanctify it through your behavior by making those who follow God bear witness to the decency and to the value that that brings with it. There's this beautiful Talmud page in the Talmud in Tractate Yoma. It goes something like this. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your might. And Abai asks, what does it mean to love God? And for many people, to love God is love God's truth. He says, no. He says, what does it mean to love God? Shem Shamayim. Ilana, I'm going to do one of your moves. I'm going to, I'm going to speak Hebrew. Shem Shamayim Mitahev Al Yadcha. That the name of God will become beloved through you. That's beautiful. It's and beautiful. so maybe, you know, there's, we, we tried in this country. We tried through categories called Mamlachtiyut, which has no, I have no idea how to translate it. It's, some sense of, for the sake of the common good. With the dignity of, of the, the nation. State, like, the like nation. We understood yeah. that, you know, like we're, not, we're not in shul anymore. Mm -hmm. We're in a country. And we're with people who disagree with us. And how your, your, what does your, does your truth and holding on to your truth make you more beloved, L'Shem Shamayim, or not? I have so many meaningful teachings. But I find that 
there's something that we're coming up against. I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's tribalism. I don't know if it's party loyalty. I don't know if it is a sense that you're there, that in many ways, maybe we, maybe the debate is, you know, we like the first Kiddush Hashem, um, but we want to die for the sake of our truth. But very often it's not that we want to die, we want someone else to die for our truth. Um, but the, it's, you know, maybe, I, I, I remember, I, and then I'll just say this, and then I'll, uh, any last thoughts, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take a break and turn to Ilana. I was just teaching this remarkable group of people who are called the very fellows from the Angelicum in the Vatican. And um, they come from all over the world. It must have been 2025. 20, um, people who are priests and um, um, sisters and, and teachers. And they come for a an intense course at the Angelicum in interfaith pluralism and tolerance. And they asked me to give a lecture about pluralism. And I gave a lecture and I spoke about pluralism and, and its features and where it comes from and, it, and how God, how the idea of one God transcends one truth. And again, like I said, I moved myself deeply again. And um, it was really, I was almost in tears. And, 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 and a man, a beautiful man, like you can tell this, he had this beautiful face from India, he said, Rabbi Hartman, I want to thank you so much for what you're speaking about pluralism. It's very idealistic, he says. He says, I can't teach that in India. I can't teach my Catholics in the midst of Hindu and Muslim friction that yes, God loves Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and that God is greater than any individual truth, and to be a person of faith is to recognize all these things. He says, I can't teach. He says, how do you want me to teach pluralism? And I said to him, I said, first of all, I didn't think about it. <laughs> like, I, don't, I'm not, I didn't think of your reality, but maybe I should have. Maybe my reality is pretty close. I said to him, maybe you don't teach it. Maybe you just act it. Just act it. And maybe the only hope for this country is just like this moment, and maybe by us speaking about it and elevating it, and let's creep, let's let's sanctify this, let's model it, let's be be the type of relationship that we want with truth, because I think conceptualizing it is maybe that's not the way to go. Maybe it's just modeling it. Last thoughts, you. Know, I think that uh, what yes. what we've been talking about is is holding on to a model that exists it actually happened and you know and here we are we're, we're convening this week at, at the institute to re-envision israel to to reawaken our capacity to imagine a better israel the israel that ought to be and not only the israel that is um, we have a moment that has already been forgotten, but maybe it's part of our educational responsibility to hold on to that moment, to hold that moment up. This is a teaching moment. Which stories we tell are the right. stories that live. That's right. Let's take a short break and then Ilana will join us. Yeah. 
Ilana, it's great to be with you. I always see you on Zoom. <laughs> I don't have to move my chair. <laughs> um, it's wonderful to be with you. How do we keep this moment alive? What Torah do you have that all of us could start speaking from the mountain? Because we got to, this week, we can't give this one up, Ilana. Well, first of all, I, I want to just say how remarkable I think it is that the two of you, given the fact that you live in this reality and you don't really know what's coming next, that the two of you are choosing as educators to change the memory of this moment from one of loss into one of exemplary or exemplarity. I think that is a remarkable educational that's, move. That's very powerful. And, and, I, and I'm happy to be it's part of It's complimentary, so we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it I, I think it's important. It's an educational move, right? As a parent, I shape my kids' memories by telling them that things happened in a certain way, and it actually shapes the way they remember that things happen. And as educators, we yeah. do that all the time. You know, you can't get to this through for the sake of heaven, with shame shamayim. You can't. Because as you said, I can marshal examples where L'Shem Shamayim is about being single-minded. It's about only associating with your own and with your truth. And I can marshal examples that will tell you that L'Shem Shamayim means that there will be debates and you have to actually get everyone to love God by the way that you behave, right? But there is, I think, a way to, to think through this moment using uh, Torah paradigms. And that is through thinking about two paradigms that exist for moments where you either throw away the sacred cows, you just sort of push them to the side, or you're just a little more flexible with them. And each of these paradigms that exist within rabbinic literature, they point to a certain possibility in particular moments, and each has its challenge. So the first paradigm is what we call a hora'at sha'ah. A hora'at sha'ah is literally a directive for the moment. And I want to give you an example of a hora'at sha'ah that people don't usually talk about. Explain it again, hora'at sha'ah. You're going to, we're going to learn what it is. Literally directive for the moment, okay? A I'm surprised you haven't heard of it. A directive for the moment. Yes, a directive for the moment. They're getting the people here who are... In, yes. In, in, inter... It's, it's hard to imagine all of the people we're speaking to right now. Exactly. It's great, <laughs> but it's really, really great. So I want to give an example um, of a hora'at sha'ah that will give you a sense of what we're talking about. You have to put yourself in the mindset of an idolatrous Israelite nation. If you could do such a thing, we're pagans, we're not doing the right thing. And along comes this hero, Gidon, which whenever I come to the Machon, because of our own Gidon maze, I always think about the hero Gidon when I'm here, right? So the hero Gidon, he has a vision that it's time to return the people to God. And here's what he hears in the vision. This is Judges chapter 6, verses 26 to 27. That night the Lord said to him, Take a young bull belonging to your father and another bull seven years old, Pull down the altar of Baal, the pagan deity that they were worshiping. Pull down that altar, which belongs to your father, and cut down the sacred post, which is like a piece of wood that they would also worship, which is beside it. And then what are you going to do? Then build an altar to the Lord, your God, 
on the level ground on the top of this stronghold. Take a bowl and offer it as a burnt offering using the pagan wood, using the wood of the sacred post that you've cut down. Now, when I was a kid, we used to have something called Highlights Magazine. You would sit at your doctor's office, and while you're waiting, you look at the back of Highlights Magazine, and you circle all the things that are wrong. I cannot tell you how many things are wrong with this. You're not supposed to sacrifice at night. You're not allowed to sacrifice outside of the precincts of the temple. You're not allowed to sacrifice using the woods of something that's pagan. You're not allowed to sacrifice not using the actual utensils that are spent. And it's not just me. The rabbis notice it too, in fact, right? The Talmud says, on that night, God said to him, take this bowl. Rabbi Abba, son of Kahana, says, there were eight things that were permitted that night that are not permitted. And then he starts to list what the eight things were. Now, do you think that this hora'at sha'ah, this directive of the moment, is saying, forevermore, you're not al now allowed to do this. You can take pagan materials and you can sacrifice things outside of the... It's not forever. It's a temper. It's an emergency power. It's an emergency power. Shun, shunt the sacred cow to the side because right now we are in an urgent moment and there's something more important than that right now. That is typical hora'at What's amazing about hora'at is that you can do really severe things. You can really throw away some big sacred cows. But what's difficult is it doesn't last. And I looked at this government and I said, yeah, so Horatcha, it's Horatcha. It's, we want to get away from BB. So what are we going to do? We're the, but we can't make this work. What are you talking about? This is akin to literally changing the entire architecture of the way we do everything. It's not happening. So there's another model, because there's always another model. The model is doing things for the sake of peace. We have many examples, Mipnei Darkei Shalom, we have many examples within rabbinic literature where we are told not throw away a sacred cow, but you can cross certain boundaries in order to promote peace, in order to promote a society that is built on the values that you want it to be built upon, right? So here's a great example. The Mishnah says in Tractate Gittin, Gittin, where am I from? Gittin, that you know, when the Jewish poor are collecting the extra stuff that's left in the fields and someone who's pagan walks in and they want to collect too, let them collect for the sake of peace. What do you need to stand on your, well, show me your, show me your ID card, right? And this idea, not as severe, right? This is not about, you know, worshiping using pagan materials. This is a different, if it is a lower, degree, but it's something, right? And it should last. It should be able to last. But in this situation, the, what, what's built in is an awareness of the parameters all the time, right? Of what can you do? So even the Jerusalem Talmud talking about this law and this permissibility says the following. If you have a city that has both Gentiles and Jews, you should make sure that there are people who collect Charity for both Gentiles and Jews. You should make sure that you collect charity from both Gentiles and Jews. You should make sure that you take care of both Gentiles and Jewish poor. You should visit everybody's poor. You should bury everyone's dead. You should comfort everyone's mourners. You should clean each other's laundry. 
That one kind of came out of left field. But you should clean each other's laundry. And then comes the question. But Rabbi Emi, even on their holidays? Are you sure? We're a little worried because our whole point is that around their holidays, we don't want paganism. We don't want people who are pagan to say, look, I got this great thing and then go thank their foreign deities. So there's an awareness at all times of like, how, how far can we go? And I said to myself, what if this coalition, instead of having been so wide in terms of its differences and divergences, what if it had been a little narrower? What if it had been in the spirit of for the sake of peace? And yes, it's true, the parameters would have had to be narrower, but maybe it would last longer. Maybe you'd be able to go further. Right? So I'm sitting and I'm thinking about these two paradigms and I'm going, okay, so they each have their problems because one of them, you can't go far enough, but it'll last. And the other one, you go so far that it can't last. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm learning this from a Talmud, which I know doesn't sound like a Eureka, like it shouldn't be a Eureka, but it was a Eureka. Because you know what the, one of the biggest examples of a Hora'at Sha'a is one of the biggest examples of a directive that was supposed to be for the moment is writing down the oral law. The way that the Talmud talks about writing down the oral law, and for those who want to look it up in its written form, it's in Tractate Tmura 14b. The way the Talmud talks about it is we are only allowing you to write down the oral law because of Hora'at Sha'a, because of the directive of the moment. And then I said, whoa. What were moment, they afraid of? Why didn't they want it written down? You know, it, it's not totally clear. It seems like some of it is that they were concerned that actually the oral law was supposed to only belong to the Jewish people and they didn't want other people to see well, it. Maybe it would some be, of it, start competing with the other. So might have it, some of it might have been a question of, well, maybe you'll compete with what the oral law says if everybody the can. law, yeah. It, but, um, I hear you. I'm not sure that I buy that argument, but to each their own. But what's amazing is, guess what? Guess how long that emergency power has lasted? Uh, in a few minutes, it'll be about 1,700 years. And I'm saying to myself, wow, what happens when you do something because you're in a crisis mode and you think it's an emergency moment? And then you realize the moment is the new reality. It is the new paradigm. And I do wonder, as someone who's watching from the side, you know, we're having this in America, by the way, where we say, no, we don't want emergency powers to turn into the permanent moments, right? This is a different version of that. But is there a possibility that crisis could ultimately breed an understanding that the emergency has become the new paradigm. So what happens is what you're saying is that you don't compete. You can't compete against truth. Once it's the truth, you can't compete. You could say peace and it'll sound pirates. Like, what you need is the concept of truth. It's, it's an emergency. It's like, it's, it's truth. You still get, and then what that emergency, then way leads to way. And then, um, so we just have to hope that by the seventh election, after they still can, that will find that will create another emergency, and then these types of emergencies will come, and then people will turn around and say, you know, this is the new normal. And I think I would even put it 
more strongly as I'm listening to you, which is what if the emergency is the truth? Meaning what, what if but that the need time. of the moment becomes the truth. the truth and that's the work of educators yes, right that's the work of educators to make that the truth y'all see last thoughts yeah th thank you that was really really beautiful um, i um i'm still mulling over kiddush hashem and um and i think that that in some ways that's the the crux of the debate uh kiddush hashem versus kiddush hachayim sanctifying uh, sanctifying life itself. And uh, there are times for Kiddush Hashem, there are times when one is supposed to lay down one's life for the truth. But there's also a time for Kiddush HaChaim when you sacrifice your truth, or at least part of your truth, for life. And uh, affirming that life itself is at times the highest value. You know, you just reminded me of something. This is a country which was built on Kiddusha, on to die for Kiddusha Hashem. Right, right. Like that's, to, to speak, when you were talking, I was like immediately going back to my upbringing and to the upbringing of generations who founded this country. And it's still sustained and, and the periodically. People who, the people who had to come off the boats yes, and fight sure. in Latrun and, sure. and the experience of having to give your children. It's like, this is a country where if you're serious, yeah. you're going to do Kiddush. That's why this country, they love the Akeda, the binding of Isaac. That's like, you know, you're serious. Like you're willing to, it's like, that's like, when you have your, like, there's no end, you know, and it's so inbound, it's so embedded in the country. And, um, but we're on a journey to Kiddush HaChaim, you know, part of what we, it, this is not a country, you know, what was it last year? Like how many, we're, we're really living here. Maybe we just our ideology hasn't caught up with, with our reality. It's like we, we, this or is maybe a great we need to find the balance because we, we are periodically summoned to, to Kiddush Hashem, but we need to find yeah. the balance here. Yeah. My friends. It's, it's, it's a pleasure and, and uh, an honor Always. to be with you. Always. Because we have a live audience, we're going to say goodbye. If some of you, you know, your car got to where it got to where it goes to, <laughs> you know, like, like whatever. I, I've never listened to a podcast in a car, but I understand that's what people do. Um, doesn't sound like a great idea. I don't know. I always thought that people sat, in, you know, in a house of study listening to our podcast. <laughs> so it's, oh, I love X. Well, here they are in a house of study I listening love to the podcast. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't know if to be happy when someone says to me, you know, I love exercising with your podcast. Like, oh, I love it too. In any event, thank you someone all for listening. Me, but now, yeah. Someone told me today, I, I do extra laps because I, I wait for the end of the podcast. And, and, and I think compliment. we do fewer laps because we're sitting here. So we're that's now right. going to, um, for the, we'll take about 10 minutes of questions. Uh, yes, please, sir. Why wouldn't all Israeli governments be right-wing going forward, regardless of emotional or intellectual arguments otherwise? Great question. Anybody want to take that? Absolutely not. 
<laughs> because it's a really good question. All right. And, and it might make us less optimistic, you mean? Yeah, look, look, the question, you're, you're, you're right. The, the, the country at this moment uh, is, uh, is, is not divided. It was, in the 90s, it was divided between right and left almost evenly. It certainly is not uh, divided between right and left anymore. It isn't even really divided between right and center, although the center is the stronger opposition. But the question is, what kind of right? That's the point. And uh, there's a moderate right, there's a mainstream right, and then there's a right of the coalition that Netanyahu is going to be presenting, uh, which is beholden to the far right, to a race, a, an avowedly racist party. And that is not part of the Israeli political tradition. It isn't part of the Israeli right-wing mainstream political tradition. And so that's really, I think, so maybe what, what we have about. to do is that when you think that we are divided between the right and the left, maybe the more interesting divisions in this country are the far, far, far right, the far right, the right, the centrist right, the liberal right. So all of a sudden, we have a lot of pluralism going on here. <laughs> and so even though it's like, because like, what is it? Like, you know, if Gidon Saar, and Bennett and Lieberman all get up and say, we have to save this country from Smotrich, maybe our categories are a little different, need to be redefined. And so part of what we saw is we saw Meretz and Labor and Yeshatid and Kaholavan being able to join because there were other ideological connections. And it could be that the far right and, and left, that, that the only time that issue is going to be really ideologically significant is when it comes to signing a peace treaty. And until which time you're not speaking about territorial compromise, what does it mean to be right-wing? Does it mean to be right-wing to be disrespectful to refugees? Does right-wing mean that I believe that Palestinians, that Palestinian lives don't matter? Does to be right-wing mean that I don't believe that Israeli-Palestinians have just as many rights as Israeli Jews? Like, what caused? Maybe what we're seeing is not the strengthening of the right, but actually, what are we ideologically really committed to? And maybe these categories aren't even serving us anymore, in which case, there's room for a broad coalition, until which time there will be a peace treaty. And when, if a peace treaty comes up, it's not going to come from the inner groundswell of a rediscovered truth of the value of peace. It's going to come when Saudi Arabia decides to get involved. And Israelis are going to say, you know, for that, that's worth it. Just like that, that, it was worth it. Or that's what the Abraham Accords began. That was the remarkable gift of the Abraham Accords. Yeah. Um, maybe it'll come because there'll be an American president who decides that it pays to expend some political capital on what goes on here. And I'm not blaming anybody because I can understand there's a lot of other problems in the world. And why invest political capital on something that you think is going to fail in any event? But a moment might come where there's a confluence of things. And please remember, it was Netanyahu who gave up Hebron at Y. It was Netanyahu who formally said that for the sake of, these, of, of, 
of these um, of the Abraham Accords, I'm not, I'm I'm gonna, I'm going to take a nexing off off the table. So maybe the good news is that it's just going to get much more messier, and there'll be far more. And that was the gift of this coalition. Like you know, I saw it on myself. You know, like I wasn't a fan of Bennett. It's so interesting because to American ears. Your question, we could ask the same question about the Republican Party in America, and we could ask the same question about the division, divergence we're seeing between liberals and progressives, which in the within the Democratic Party. And I think what we were trying to do here tonight is to ask, what does it look like when our expectations are actually undermined because interests, real life, meet people's ideological stuckness, and somehow it moves them out of it. So. The question is very relevant to what we were talking about tonight. Thank you. Uh, yes, ma'am. I was got trying that. to figure out if the Abraham Accords were part of Kirat Shah because these accords are with countries that have very different values. Um, and the one thing that I'm reading all the time is that Israel is working quietly with Saudi Arabia. And obviously, this crown prince I mean, we're all aware of the journalist. Not only was he killed, but he was chopped up. Um, I wrestle with that, and I wonder. I hear you, friends. Anybody want to? Yeah, you want to yeah, take that I, one? I don't. Oh, I don't. You want to go first? I don't wrestle with it at all, and uh, I don't think um, I, I don't know any Israelis who are ambivalent about the prospect of uh, of peace with uh with saudi arabia which was probably our most implacable enemy which is the custodian of uh, uh islam's uh, holiest sites it will be a um a transformative moment to have peace with saudi arabia and there's also the question of uh we, we were talking about living uh in 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 reality uh, i i live in a region here where saudi arabia is 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 a bad actor, but it is by no means uh, the worst actor. And uh, not only is it not the worst actor, but if you look at the changes that are that the Saudis are are leading uh, in, uh, in, uh, in 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 the, in the Muslim world, uh, I think that uh, we we really need to to readjust our uh, our. Uh, and, and again, that's not to to minimize. The, the brutality and the, the severity of, of the particular crime you, you mentioned, but uh, there's a much bigger context here. So one yeah. of the reasons why we're doing these breakout sessions this week at our leadership program on the ethics of a good society is because we really want to ask the question of to what degree do we judge societies differently than we judge individuals? And where an individual wouldn't be allowed to do something can a state do it? And if so, why? And if not, why not? And I think yours is a perfect example of such a question. And it always brings me back to Michael Walzer's piece on dirty hands that he wrote decades ago, where he says, there is no such thing as power without dirty hands. There's no such thing as politics without dirty hands, right, left, or center. You are always going to be making alliances with people in moments that you don't want to. And he asks, what do you do about that? And so one is, just don't have power, give it up. Another is say, I don't care, this is what power needs and that's it, and you wouldn't do any different. And a third is to somehow do some sort of, I think he calls it penitence, but something where you are actually working to ameliorate 
something that's going wrong that relates somehow to the sins that are engaged in the people with whom you're aligning yourself. But I, I don't think it's a simple question. Um, and I think it might speak to the question of ethical ethics of societies versus ethics of individuals. But there's more to talk about. You know, it's also really interesting. We made peace with Arafat. And I didn't hear anybody say, how could you? I remember the moment when Robin the shook hand. his hand on the Rose Garden, I turned to my wife, Adina, and I said, Adina, I just forgave him. Like that, I remember, because I, I hated this man. I was raised that he was Hitler. That's why I was raised in Israel. You, he was Hitler. You just looked at him, the, the kafia, the, the whole, that's why I was raised. And part of what you do when you make peace is you decide to say we're we're moving forward and things will change and so it's uh it, there's it's 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 a complicated story michelle you are remembered thank you all for listening and lila tov everyone for Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kelman and edited by Corey Choi. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can also write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you in two weeks. Thank you for listening and goodbye.